I think for you to really live that, you have to have leaders who want to live it. You cannot say it. And I think there are too many companies who talk about their purpose and they talk about their sustainability goals and their diversity, and then they don't live it. So I think the first thing is that you have to look at yourself and your leadership team and say, what do we stand for? And are we prepared to live accordingly? That's Helen Barnacue, CEO of Microsoft Sweden and one of the most accomplished women working in technology today. Over more than two decades, Helen has led companies like EMC, Ericsson, and the Telia company into the cloud age. Along the way, she's discovered the importance of leading with transparency and empathy, inspiring her to write the book, Restart, Value-Based Leadership in a Changing World. In this episode, Helen explores resilience, how to stay curious, and why it's so important for leaders to follow through on what they say they're going to do. This is Daniel Sachs, co-CEO of AppDirect, and it's time to decode values-based leadership. Welcome to Decoding Digital, a podcast for innovators looking to thrive in the digital economy. I'm your host, Daniel Sachs, and I'll sit down with other founders, CEOs, and changemakers to decode the trends that are transforming the way we work. Let's decode. Helen, welcome to the show. Hey, Daniel. Thank you. Great to be here. It's a pleasure to speak with you. I believe the last time we connected, we were in Stuart Plan in Stockholm, enjoying the beautiful outdoors and beer garden, uh, which may be more restrictive today. Yeah, that's true. That feels like a long time ago, actually, when we could do those things. And um, yeah, let's hope we can do that soon again. Exactly. So you sit in the intersection of telecom and technology, and you've seen incredible waves of change happen over the last decade, but more particularly this year. I'd love to get your perspective of how each industry is tackling the challenges of today. Yeah, it's a good perspective because it is quite different, I would say, within industries. And I think it's also different from private and public sector, for example, where we see a big difference. We have kind of made an estimate that due to this COVID-19 situation, we had about two years worth of digitalization done in two months. That's how much it accelerated. And of course, there's some really obvious ones, like the stores basically closed all over Europe around the same time. And then in other parts of the world, so of course, the e-commerce digitalization is one, I would say, one like very specific one. But the other one, I think, which is maybe more fundamental is actually how we work. The fact that either offices closed or we were recommended to work from home, like in my country, it didn't really close, but we were still having strong recommendations to work from home. So I think we reset and changed how we're working. And I think that went across industries. And I think maybe it was really big for the global companies. If you look at the global manufacturing companies, for example, even if they're in a market, car companies, car manufacturing, they're so dependent on export and they have people everywhere. So I think that way of working And if you look at the public sector, which is quite different, if you look at schools closing, you had to quickly actually digitalize and get the teachers and the students. Most of them had like a week to get this done, to actually get ready for a world where they lived completely virtual. So it was different from different, I think, sectors and different industries and different characteristics. But I would say almost nobody was spared. (laughs) Nobody could resist to do some part of digitalization the last few months, actually. And as the CEO of Microsoft Sweden, 
Tell me about what happened on the ground to get the country prepared and the private sector prepared for this change. Yeah. So I would say it was such an interesting period of time. So of course, some of the companies we work with, especially I would say in the private sector, they were quite prepared, of course. But I would also say that many had actually invested in platforms, but were not used to using them. And I think that's a world of difference. And I think that's a really important learning going forward, how we actually, as companies or organizations, we embrace technology earlier on, and we actually focus on changing our behaviors and our way of working and doing things or creating value before and not wait for a crisis to actually force it forward. So March 16 was the big day in Sweden, because that's when we got the recommendation to work from home and many things were closed, but even if they weren't closed down, basically people weren't showing up any longer. So I think there was one strain, which was exactly that. How do we get the multinational companies up and running on, on the Teams platform properly? Not just being able to do a video call, but being able to do live meetings with a thousand people, being able to co-create, being able to use them as real collaboration platform, sharing our experiences, because I would say we're quite used to working. I never see all my people, all my team members in the office. People work from all over the place. So sharing our own stories about how do we lead, what kind of culture have we created to be able to work in that way. And that had to be done over a week. If you take a company managing networks all over the world, you couldn't wait for a month or something. You had to just get in there and work on that. So we had really intense work doing that. And if I take another example, if you take the schools, for example, we were working with all the high schools in Stockholm and they had two days basically to get ready. Now, luckily they had bought the Teams platform, but they had never worked in it, right? But then it was about, it was 30,000 students, 4,000 teachers, 30 schools. And we just had intense sessions with them every single day. We just had all the teachers calling in, showing them how to use the camera, how to use the whiteboard, how could they post assignments, how could they actually interact with their students, how could they, you know, raise their hand, how could they use the chat. So it was, I think, all men on deck kind of a feeling that whatever needed to be done, if it was a large corporation connecting their staff in, in 100 countries, or if it was the high schools that needed to be prepared. And in that way, it was also really, I think, a special moment because it was very purposeful, right? You knew your country wouldn't be able to function. The hospitals wouldn't be able to function. We wouldn't be able to onboard all those doctors and nurses if we didn't go and help them to do that in a digital way, and otherwise it would take long. The schools wouldn't be able to continue to function. The companies wouldn't function. So it was also very, I mean, crisis is not a good thing, but it was also giving a lot of, I think, meaningful and joint purpose on people coming together around it. And what's the lesson learned in accelerating tech adoption without a crisis? <laughs> I think the lesson learned is, I mean, you work in this space, but I think the saying of never waste a crisis is a good one. I think we need to have a sense of urgency in how we adopt technology. And that's not for the sake of the tech companies, of course, but I think if you think of all the opportunities, there are all the new possibilities you have by adopting tech in whatever, it doesn't matter if you're a public sector or if you're a large global company or if you're a startup, it doesn't, startups come more natural because they usually build around technology, but it doesn't matter which industry you're in. The opportunities that come with technology, whether it is improving the way you work, whether it's creating more flexibility for your employees, whether it's creating new customer proposals, whether it comes how you improve your products, whether it's reducing travel, whether it's climate change, whatever it is, we cannot 
optimize any of that without making use of technology. So for me, the learning is even more, maybe we knew it in a way, but I think the learning is even more to, we have to embrace it. We have to have a sense of urgency because the opportunities that come with integrating technology into our operations, wherever it is, we cannot do it without it. And we're wasting, whether it's we're wasting the resources in the world or we're wasting our time or something by not embracing it. And I'm hoping we're going to use this learning that's happening right now to not think about how do we go back, but to think about what have we learned during these difficult times and how do we create that next way of working, living, doing business, (laughs) planning our lives in a new, much more hybrid world than where we came from. So you mentioned the bottleneck is behavioral change. What's your perspective on driving the right level of behavioral change and how do you do that effectively? So I actually think, and having worked both with my own transformations and having worked with customers doing transformation, I actually think, and I think the proof point is actually now, I actually think the easier thing, and I don't mean it in a demeaning way because it can be very difficult for a large company, but the easier thing is still actually to invest in technology and buy new systems or platform. And actually the harder and more challenging thing, and the thing that takes longer is actually to drive behavioral change and culture. And I think you have to first land in that to realize that it's not about buying a team's platform because it can sit there and you can do a few video calls, but that doesn't mean that you're getting the value out of it as one example. So I think you drive it because I think it's a leadership question. I think you have to have it on the agenda. I think you have to work with change management. I think you have to get it into your culture. You have to work with your culture. You have to call out what do you believe is the culture you need to have that kind of progress, to have that kind of movement in your organization. At Microsoft, when Satya Nadella came in 2014, this is way before I was at Microsoft, of course, and started his journey with Microsoft as CEO, he founded that in growth mindset which is really interesting. I can warmly recommend you to Google a bit and read up on that research. But the whole notion of if you foster a culture with growth mindset, where you you are curious, you look for new things, you look to understand, you're more focused on the questions that are being asked so you can learn new things than actually having the answers to all the questions because you already learned them before. And I think fostering that type of culture where you're really focusing on growth mindset, where you really focus on What can you deliver to the customer or on climate change or on sustainability or something else and really drive that? Then you foster a culture where you are having a drive to understand how you also apply technology. Because to me, these two come together. To me, really having a tech-intense world that we do has to be matched with a value-based leadership that really focus on the teams, on the people, on the capabilities that we need to develop in our teams to be able to pull these together. And that's a great transition to discuss your book, Restart, Values-Based Leadership in a Changing World. I've always been a value-centric leader and found that to be so important. And your book really resonates in the fact that it ties values to culture and to making difficult changes. But do you want to expand a little bit more on how you define values-based leadership? And I completely agree with you. It's something new, and maybe it's obvious, but I still need to say it because it's not always the case. I think for you to really live that, you have to have leaders who want to live it. You cannot say it. And I think there are too many companies who talk about their purpose and they talk about their sustainability goals and their diversity. 
and then they don't live it. You open the web page and it's all white middle-aged men and then they have some diversity value that they want to live by. So I think the first thing is that you have to look at yourself and your leadership team and say, what do we stand for? And are we prepared to live accordingly? And I just think this is so fundamental and I see many companies who are actually not doing that. So I think it's just really fundamental. Then I think you have to identify... So, for example, I said that at Microsoft, the foundation was growth mindset. If you pick some of these values, so growth mindset is one. We have customer obsession built into what kind of culture we want to build. I used that actually in my previous job when you and I first met as my change platform. Because if you actually have a customer obsessed view in how you want to do things, then you're always looking from the external perspective. What is it you're going to have impact on? What is it you're going to bring to somebody instead of building your own organizations for the sake of having them, for example? Uh, But equally important to me is actually an employee obsession, really being focused on your teams then. What does that look like if they're going to have growth mindset, if they're going to be the best to have impact on this world? What do they need? And what are those things that make them feel good about themselves, be part of it. And this is where you end up, from my perspective, focusing on diversity and inclusion. And to me, that is such an important value connection to be able to stand for these things. And if you don't stand, if you cannot stand for them, don't ever say it, (laughs) is my viewpoint. Because actually, it's better not to claim anything if you can't stand by it. We had it today in the office, we had a full day on inclusion that my team put together. So we worked on inclusion for a full day with external speakers, internal speakers. But the important thing was to be honest about it. And my leadership team here today, and the same when I, when you and I met, when I redid my leadership team, we have 50% men and 50% women, which is unusual in the tech sector. I've worked with this for 25 years, so it's been part of my agenda. But we don't have enough diversity because, you know, Sweden is quite a multicultural country, actually. It has turned into that over the past 20 years. And that hasn't transcended into what our leadership teams look like. Then I have to be honest and say, we don't have enough. And this is part of my agenda. This is what I'm working on. This is how I identify in Pipeline now and asking my the exec search team to look for talent because we need to go and look for that. So I think then you have to be honest and you have to then act upon it. I think that's maybe the most important thing on value-based leadership. So you mentioned honest conversation. How do you facilitate that as a leader? A couple of things. Firstly, I think I've done sessions, I think, in almost all my leadership team where you have to talk about your own personal why. So why are you here? Why am I here? And I don't know why I'm at Microsoft or Telia or EMC or something. If it just happened to be a good career opportunity and a decent paycheck, then I think it's very hard to get to honest conversations or value-based leadership, actually. So I think you need to feel that there is a why and you have to feel that the leaders around you actually have a why. And then I think you need to start yourself. So you need to take the difficult conversations. You need to take them up front. When something is not going well, when you're not sufficiently happy with diversity, for example, have that conversation up front. Have that conversation at an all-hands meeting. Make your commitments to what you want to do to change any of that. But I think as a leader, you're not perfect and nobody's going to expect you to be perfect. But if you're honest and you seem to be doing what you say that you're going to do, it's walk the talk and talk the walk, right? You need to do both things. And then I think you foster that openness and honesty. And that's also why we had the inclusion day today, because it's clear that a culture that is inclusive, the teams that are inclusive are 50% more productive. And if you don't have honest conversations, I think it's very hard to get to inclusion because then you don't feel it. If I can't show up the way I am and talk about the things that I think are important, 
then I don't feel included. And then you lose productivity, you lose innovation, basically. And what's the specific form or methodology for this honest conversation? It's a really good question you're saying, because you don't show up, you don't put 300 people in a room and have an honest conversation. I think you take step by step. I think it also depends on the culture of that team. So I think we've done a few things. We've done, of course, different smaller groups. We've done insight models. So we get to know each other and then we work in smaller groups. Also, I think so the conversations is not becoming about personality. That's a really non-constructive thing. (laughs) If the conversations become about your personality and I don't really like the way you talk to me or something, but if it becomes more a question of getting help to actually get to know each other and understand each other and understand what that does to the team. So I have done that in all the teams I have been part of building. So I think it starts from actually the individual basis in the smaller team. And when that team gets more secure together and with that honest, they feel also empowered to have honest conversations and they need to do it in their team. But this is a world of difference. A team that actually has honest conversations versus one that doesn't, I think is really a game changer. Now, in terms of the format, I also think once you have built that trust to honest conversations, I think showcasing that I did a crazy thing at Telia. We did a session with my team on singing and coding, and I had no idea what was going to come out of it. We had a digital designer and an artist spending a day with us singing and coding. And it's a long story, but it was about actually doing the unexpected, trusting each other to do it, but also learning the coding because we have to lead and manage so many people who were born in the coding age. And we weren't, most of us, because we were you know, older execs, senior execs. So the whole day ended up with us standing in the middle of the building in the staircase, this beautiful staircase, and singing. It was like a completely spontaneous thing. So there were customers in the building, there were teams in the building. And that would never have happened if the team hadn't trusted both ourselves and the others. But what happened to that as well is that everybody who saw it, you know, we had several thousand people in that building, they looked at it and said, wow, they are so uncomfortable. They are completely outside their comfort zone. They do not know how to sing. But they're doing this because they're comfortable and they want us to step outside our comfort zone. So I think the part of doing, I think the strongest of my heart in leadership is to do things. Because when you do things, you feel something. And when you feel something, I think you can change something. That's a key theme we've seen come up, which is bias toward action, approaching things with a lean startup methodology. And for many of the discussions we've had on this podcast, that becomes the baseline for this growth mindset is the ability to take action. And that's very inspirational as well because anyone at any level can take steps to take action regardless of how big, how small. One thing I'm fascinated by in your approach is you've spoke a lot about growth mindset and values-based leadership. Now, let's say the leadership sets values and they believe they can commit to them. But when you have an organization of thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people... Sometimes there are bad actors and that can spoil the brand of the organization. Can you speak to how you put controls in place to ensure that as many people as possible are following those values? And if they're not followed, how you address that? No, this is a really important area. And I think it's an important area and maybe sometimes a bit more tricky than we think. The thing that is not difficult is to actually take action if somebody is not living up to your standards of ethics or compliance or how we treat people or respect is one of our fundamental basis values. And if there is, you know, no respect, then it's maybe not so tricky. And 
we have also in, in several of my companies and including now, you start to actually make very clear that you do an evaluation of what and the how. You have your targets, you have your numbers, you have your quotas and you have all these things. But you also have another side where you actually get both evaluated and awarded and rewarded based upon how you live the culture and how you drive us forward. So this is really important. You cannot afford (laughs) to have people not being seen as living by or even role modeling what you have agreed is the fundamental of that culture because then nobody's going to believe you. This is hard. And I always say this to my team as well. These conversations never get easier. I've done them for many, many years. I think when you, especially if you have to take severe action and maybe you have to part even between the company and the individual, they never become easier. And of course, if it's something really hard facts, the conversation can be easier when it's soft facts, right? So feedback and how you manage these processes, you have to practice them. Now, I think also the thing that makes that question more interesting, though, is when people sometimes say to me, yeah, let's hire her. She totally fits into our culture. And I always caution on that because there's a caution in that in terms of, yes, if it's somebody who lives by the values, boosts our culture, takes us forward and challenges us, this is the perfect hire. So she totally fits into our culture. It could also be that I'm hiring somebody who's like myself, right? Who I feel I recognize myself in and will not challenge a different thinking because actually fits in so well. Now, that's very risky to build teams because then you come into something like, yeah, if we hire all people who think like myself, we will all live the same culture. And that's not the culture we want. (laughs) And this is why I think you have to spend time on these conversations and they have to be conversations. So we work in different workshops in terms of value workshops. We bring in our own stories and talk about, so when I lead these workshops myself and I talk about what does that mean? And what does that mean in terms of value for me? And how do I connect that with diversity, for example? What happens in an inclusive world? What does allyship mean in this if I end up in this situation? Because can I be an ally to somebody and have that difficult discussion, for example? So these are actually quite complex. And I think you have to not throw people out there on those things because it's also about people. So I think you have to practice You have to work with this. You have to talk about it. You have to put training courses in place. You have to have your HR being really engaged and helping you because that's not difficult and it will always be there. And as a leader, you will always, always have to have that as part of what your responsibility is. So you just spoke to the methodology to attract, train, and retain talent. When it comes to attracting talent, how do you evaluate talent? And do you believe that A growth mindset is something that is born or can be taught? Yes. So talent, that whole chapter on talent, yeah, it's maybe the most important topic we have, not the least in the industries we're in where it's a little bit of an overused word, but the word talent is true, right? So I actually think to frame it, I think the companies of the future need to be super magnets. They need to attract talent. They need to attract customers. They need to attract companies who want to be partners with them and they need to attract stakeholders. And I think this is why trust is so important in a company. So that attraction of talent, I think is quite broad and very fundamental. And in terms of how you evaluate talent. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, again, coming back to, it's both in terms of, can we deliver on? I mean, clearly I have targets to deliver on. And that's fundamental, of course, that you can actually deliver. Companies need to have their teams delivering the target. But there is also the part of 
can this person take us forward? Is this person driving that cultural change? And I think most of us are in some kind of change moment and it's almost hard for us to find words these days because they're so overused as well with transformations and digital transformation. But most of us have some form of journey and we have some cultural transformation. So, so I think there are always somehow a dual discussion to have with most employees. And I think the platform of having a growth mindset then the belief is, and this is also my belief in general, before I had really read up on growth mindset, is that every person can change. You're not destined to be exactly what you were yesterday or exactly what you are today. You're not destined. If I didn't have a good year last year and I didn't deliver on everything, it doesn't mean that I'm not going to be able to deliver this year. If I had a customer meeting that didn't go very well, it doesn't mean that my customer meetings next month are not going to go well. So that's the whole idea that by having that learning mindset and the people also supporting us, believing that we can grow, then we give that opportunity for ourselves as well to change. And one really important element for that, to me, I think, is to stay curious. We started a little bit on that in terms of technology, but then I think to be able to really benefit from that growth mindset, I think we need to remain curious. We need to ask questions. We need to learn and we also need to have that honesty that you talked about in terms of recognizing when something didn't go so well, or we could have had a better impact or bigger impact. Because if we don't, if we cannot be confident enough to actually understand what that is, it's also very difficult to build to something else, I think. And when you're training and evaluating the talent, you talked about the what and the how, but do you have other mechanisms to give people feedback? Is there formal 360s? Is the feedback anonymous? Is it always open? Yeah, I think you can use both. So we have a lot of, how should I say, not so much anonymous feedback. And I think you can use both. But we are using both direct feedback, but we're also having a system and a tool so you can ask for feedback from people around the organization you interact with so you can get more of a 360 view. We do 360 view feedback. Feedback is really important. And I think as the world is also more complex, it's actually an even more important tool. I haven't yet met any team, organization, or individual, including myself, who don't need to work on feedback all the time. It's very easy to either don't give enough time to it or that the feedback doesn't become very specific. So you only give feedback if it's, oh, that was a great meeting. Thank you. Then you feel like you've given feedback. (laughs) That's not very specific. And also many of us avoid difficult feedback, which is if it's really given with the right intention is the most valuable feedback you can get and the one that you can really do something about. So if you connect that with growth mindset, this is maybe the most valuable thing you can have. And I just feel like I constantly need to work on that. I think we all need to work on that. And yes, it's like a gift when you get constructive feedback or clear feedback and you're like, oh, wow. And when I think about it, I'm like, actually, I don't know if I've had that so often, but a few times I can remember feeling, all right, yes, yeah, that's the one. I didn't capture that. I didn't see it. That's the best thing that can happen, right? How do you balance giving this difficult, honest feedback with making sure that you continue to encourage and retain and grow your talent? Yeah. And I think this is the trick, finding that balance. So we have three times a year at Microsoft, we have our connects when we also document it. And I think it's also important not to think that these are your feedback moments. The sooner you give feedback, the better it is. I think there's a personality maybe how you like your feedback. 
I really don't like when people tell me uh, three positive things to then say one negative. I really don't like that. <laughs> I just think it's confusing and I get mixed messages and I lack clarity. So I like clarity. So I much rather somebody say to me, we had this review meeting and I think you would have had a much bigger impact if you had increased your ambition. I think you missed an opportunity to show your ambition. If would consider doing X, Y, Z, for example. And I think you have to get to know your team members to balance clarity and not discourage people. But I am one who likes clarity. We work with a manager model that we call model coach care, which I really, really like, which is we train all our managers in this, including myself. I've done plenty of training on this. And we spend a lot of time on coaching uh, training. And that's something I can truly recommend. Because we mix up, we use coaching as well in a little bit of a sloppy word by, you know, bouncing it off. But there is a really good methodology for coaching, how you really help and coach teams to get to their own insights and find their own ways around it and not being directive and too quick. But by really coaching, by modeling and by really caring for our team members. And if you combine these three, you get a very strong model. But in the coaching, you can also get a lot of that feedback while you find your insights yourself. And I think this is the important thing. You need to get to those insights because those are the ones you can learn. What are some of your favorite books or resources that you'd recommend to people on this subject? Before joining Microsoft, I read every single page in Satya Nadella's uh, Hit Refresh, uh, which is his story about driving change at Microsoft. It's a really fascinating book. I can very strongly recommend it. And I... Don't read many of those books every single page. This one I did. <laughs> it's really fascinating. And I think companies that are of scale and manage to go through such significant change, I think they have found both those things where you started. I think they have found both being able to be innovative technology leaders and being in the forefront, but at the same time, really working with the culture, with the leadership and really working with that value-based way of driving change. And those companies are really fascinating to look at, I think. So I'm curious, you talk about staying curious. What do you do yourself to stay curious? And what are some of the areas of development you're focused on today? One of my ways that I've had for a long time to stay curious is to take unexpected meetings. And this is sometimes difficult in crazy calendars. And I'm sure all my assistants have sometimes wanted to kill me when they said, you really need to meet this person. I said, yeah, I really need to meet this person. And I, you know, sometimes it turns out to be a meeting that it's half an hour, a cup of coffee, and we probably will never talk again. But these unexpected meetings are helping me. It gets me questions, perspectives, unexpected things that I wouldn't have thought of. And this is one of my really important things, actually, to stay curious. Now I'm in an environment where there's so much happening the whole time. So here I'm fed. Not in every company are you fed, right? So my previous job, I was not fed every single minute with new technology and new stuff and new updates and new people and new competences and new training. And now I am. So now I'm fed, but you still need to think about your own time allotment. So one of the things I've done is I've actually, I'm trying to keep good track of my time to have sufficient time externally. Because when you work in large companies, it becomes a lot of internal time. I've worked with this for the last 15 years. Now I have analytical tools in my Microsoft 365, but before that I was just color coding to keep track of my time. And I also put learning blockers in the whole Microsoft Sweden team. So Friday afternoons, we have learning blockers for two hours and people can use them to do online training, but they can go and work in a 
coding organization to teach young girls code. You can take an unexpected meeting. You can go and speak at a conference. But you have to plan and schedule time that reminds you of something new, of learning, of just being open-minded. And I think the busier you get, the more important it is to actually look for that time. So you just cannot forget it, I think. Great words of wisdom. And going back to younger people that you touched on that, it's so impressive to see where you are today, leading global organizations, feeling so inspirational and confident with yourself, being an author. Going back to when you were in school, what advice would you give yourself then? (laughs) We had that conversation today on our inclusion day. And I talked about stories, actually, when I was the only young woman around the table because they were all men in the tech sector, except for me at the time. And this goes way back. But I think one advice probably would have been, I worked tremendously hard. Every hour I didn't need to sleep, I basically worked also to prove myself. And I think probably it would have been to take a step back on what we just talked about and don't just focus on delivering, but actually focus on the things we just talked about. Take a step back take some unexpected meetings, learn something new, be curious. So it helps you to connect the dots. And when you can connect the dots and also look forward, you can usually create more value. I was really, really focused on always delivering to perfection and to the best on everything I was doing. And I think this would have been really good advice for myself earlier on. And when you speak to connecting the dots, if you look back on your career and your life for that matter, Were there a few defining moments that set you on the path to where you are today? Yes, definitely. It was a very defining moment because I studied international business and did my master's in that. And the only reason I did that because I wanted to work abroad. I was really fascinated. I had studied French and, of course, English. And I had been in the U.S. and studied a bit at high school. And so I was really drawn to multicultural, multi-country experience. But when you studied business at the time, you ended up, you know, working for banks or FMCG, et cetera. So I worked for Citibank and Geneva and et cetera. And then I tried FMCG. And then by coincidence, I got to work. I moved to Malta. I moved to several places at the time. And I got to work for, there was a company setting up with Microsoft and a local company because there was so much pirated software coming from Africa to Europe through Malta. So they set up a business in uh, in Malta and they hired me as marketing manager. And I didn't know anything about software. This is way, this goes back to 90, my gosh, 93, I think. And that's the first time I was connected to Microsoft whatsoever. I do remember the defining moments when I put an Encarta. You will have no idea what this is, but it was a CD-ROM that was called Encarta where you could actually go and search information because obviously there were no Googles yet, right? You know, you could search information about Picasso or I mean, anything, right? Anything I could fit on the CD-ROM. And I remember the defining moment when I thought, wow, this is going to change the world in terms of how we communicate. You know, I was used to working in a library. That was my only way of getting any information and suddenly it was on the CD-ROM. That was my first defining moment. The second defining moment was when I joined Ericsson Mobile Phones, and we started to design the smallest, smallest possible consumer phones you could. And nobody had a mobile phone at the time. So I got to get really involved as product manager and all sorts of positions in defining the mobile phone market. So those two were defining moments. And I think a pure coincidence that I ended up in this sector because I've been in IT or mobile or telco basically my whole life and definitely defining moments. Wow. So fast forward 10 years, how will we be working? 
In 10 years? Oh, wow. You know, I think, and this is why I'm hoping, I'm hoping that new way of working will come faster because of what we're just experiencing and COVID-19. And now, of course, I'm also, we generalize, right? Because of course, if you're in certain service, if you're a hairdresser, it may, you know, the actual thing you're doing, we still need to maybe do in the same way, maybe. But I think if you generalize, I think we will have so much more flexibility in our working life. I definitely think we will also with the help of AI, which is already helping us, but much more take away a lot of the routine tasks that we still do, many of us, every single day. I certainly think that we will meet each other. We will not be all working from home always and not even know what people live like in real life, but we will be meeting each other for special purposes. We will certainly not sit in our own cars every morning at 8 a.m. when everybody else is going and pollute the environment around our big cities. That will not be happening. And I hope it will never happen again after COVID-19 when we discovered it. So I think it will be very different. I think we will be much more, uh, of course, using different input methods so we are less limited. So voice will be a much stronger factor of how we do things. Some real early adopters are already using it much more, but I really do believe so. But I also hope, I think one of my learnings from this has been that you cannot, uh, I mean, this is great. We can do this, Daniel, and we haven't met for several years and it feels completely normal and natural and all of that, right? But I also hope that we will become better at combining what's good in our life. I think working from home so much as we've done these past few months, I really become good at doing my one-on-one calls while I'm walking. So I walk several hours a day doing my calls instead of sitting here. So I'm hoping that we will learn to build together, you know, what's quality life altogether. So getting, you know, the quality life of physical exercise while we combine it with work, while family can have a place in our work and it doesn't become so compartmentalized as we are used to having it. Well, that's a very optimistic view of the future, which I'm grateful for. So inspired by you and your growth mindset and values-based leadership. This has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining. It's been great, Daniel. Thank you so much for inviting me. Take care. Thank you. You too. On the next episode of Decoding Digital. You always have to think where you come from. Never forget that. You are the human being who happens to be in charge for a couple of years to do this. The people on the front line, they make the money for the company. The salespeople in the field, the technicians the great developers and all of that, and the service people who take 100 calls or 200 calls a day from customers and handle complaints. These are the people who matter. And as long as you don't forget that, I think that's a requirement for being allowed to run a big company. Former CEO of Deutsche Telekom, current managing director at Warburg Pincus, and chairman of the board of Airbus, Renee Oberman. Thanks for listening to Decoding Digital. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.